During our time here together, we haven't just been sharpening our meditative skills through our mindful uh, attentiveness moment to moment to the body, the mind, and to our environment. But intertwined within all of that, we've been simultaneously developing and strengthening those noble qualities of mind and heart called the paramis. Those noble qualities, as we know from being on the path even a short or a long time, whatever that means to you, uh, those noble qualities, when we feel them operative in our hearts, they give us such a sense of well-being, of deep well-being. It gives us a healthy sense of being good human beings. And one of our friends uh, and colleagues, Steve spoke about him the other night, Jack Engler, the one who gave the Rorschach um, test to Deepama and, and um, was in charge of kind of overseeing what came out of that whole research, uh, researching those beings who had been enlightened to some degree or another. He says in order to walk this path and to face the things we need to face by really seeing how things are on a very deep level, we have to develop this sense of well-being. We have to develop a, a kind of healthy sense of self to be able to open to the reality, the truth of not-self. Because it's, it can be uh, such un, unfamiliar terrain for us that to just have a sense of goodness within ourselves really helps us. So these paramis are really, really important in our lives. One of the definitions or translations of parami is paramount, paramount perfections of the highest quality in relationship to the paramis. So sometimes the paramis are translated as perfections, but within that it's the highest quality of these perfections, paramount. Another description of the word parami is carrying one to the further shore. The further shore meaning that peace that isn't conditioned upon anything. It's that kind of peace and happiness that doesn't have to come about because we have things just so in our lives. But no matter what's happening, we can have that deep sense of peace within us. So many of these paramis we've talked about very directly here and we practice them uh, even if we haven't really talked about them. So generosity or dana is one of the paramis. It's the first of the ten paramis and the one that the Buddha always starts out with and all of our teachers all start out with when they're offering the teachings. And then there's sila or morality, living in harmony with, our, with one another and ourselves. Uh, this is something we've all taken part of because we are uh, chanting the precepts and we're reminding ourselves of this every day, of the benefit of non-harming, non-harming others, non-harming our own hearts. The third one is renunciation. And that is, in particular, those of you who took 
the last three precepts of the eight precepts, these are practices of renunciation. Sometimes people wonder, you know, what's wrong with singing and dancing and wearing of jewelry and um, putting, you know, beautifying ourselves? Nothing wrong with that at all. But it's just having a practice of doing without. And that's kind of foreign in our Western society because we're so used to just getting what we want and the freedom of having whatever we want to have. So these practices of renunciation are utterly important in our society because it's not really supported by anybody around us. It's oftentimes, you know, people see these last three precepts as ridiculous, but they're really um, for some deep training in ourselves to, to practice having without something, going without something, and to see what our mind does with that. The fourth one is wisdom. We've been giving a lot of talks in relationship to wisdom. Usually that has to do with the insights Steve has talked about. And um, most deeply the insights of seeing the impermanence of life, of all of life, at every level of life, uh, moment to moment especially, and to see the ephemerality of all of life, especially in regards to a self, uh, the conditionality of everything, and also to see the, the sort of unsatiability of our own minds and hearts, and to see the constant wanting that leads to this dissatisfaction of not feeling contented with how things are in the moment. It's why our, our minds keep moving on to some future fantasy or reliving the past because somehow it gives us some kind of satisfaction to relive, relive the past, whether it was pleasant or unpleasant. So those are the three wisdoms or insights that we've been talking about here. Then there's energy, the, just the energy, the balanced energy to keep our practice going moment by moment sitting by sitting, walking by walking, day by day, just to be here for the long term of these nine days. It takes a certain kind of energy, that gentle, persevering energy. Patience gave a talk just on patience. Um, it's something that, that one talk that I give is the talk that I most get the remarks about. Oh, it came just in time. <laughs> it doesn't matter whether I gave the talk at the beginning, the middle, or the end. You know, it's always like, it's always just in time. It's something I need to remember, too. And then there's truthfulness, of course. Uh, you know, to see the truth of how things are requires that we be really truthful to ourselves, and you've been doing that. I mean, it isn't about speaking the truth, um, just that, but it's about the ability to see the truth of how things are. When I went to a retreat one time, it was my first long retreat, and people weren't really reporting exactly and honestly what was going on in their practice. And I kind of had a sense of that when we started out with a little group interview and people were saying, oh, you know, 
no defilements arose in the mind. And it was like, wow, I'm really in the wrong group, you know. <laughs> and uh, that they, you know, they could be with every walking period and the mind was not at all distracted. And I thought, gee, I came all the way over here and I, I joined the wrong retreat, you know. And so then I realized maybe they're trying to just make themselves feel better and look better. Well, at the Dharma talk in that evening, Upandita gave a talk about those of you who were not precisely honest and truthful with what you were reporting uh, today to me, I would like you to line up outside of my hut and to tell me the truth and to say that you were not truthful, to really face up to it. Boy, that really scared me, you know. <laughs> and I thought, wow, I came thousands of miles, and you know, this teacher—it was my first time with that teacher. And then I, um, I looked at my report, and I said, I, I was, I was truthful. I, I said I was sleepy, and restless, and it was hard to be with the body, and, um, and I, that was just how it was, you know. And so. Uh, I thought, well, I didn't have to go to that line. But <laughs> I watched outside, and there were a lot of people in the line. But it was good, you know. It's really good to, to just say it like it is and say, oh, I could have been more clear with you, and I'm sorry that I was not truthful. And he said, I want you to ask for forgiveness. Not for his sake, but for their sake. And... Um, and then he said in the Dharma talk, how can you experience the truth if you can't stand on the truth of your own practice? And I thought, wow, that's real. That really hit me. I remember that all the time. Truthfulness is so, so important. Now, you know, when we're in retreat, we're, we're pretty silent, we're, you know, except for necessities. And um, when you go home, don't you feel really clean because of the silence? And it's also because of truthfulness. That, you know, when you spoke, when you told us what was going on, you basically wanted us to know what was really going on so we could help you with what was really going on. So that kind of utter truthfulness, it really gives us a sense of well-being. So I just wanted to expand on that a little bit more. And then there's loving-kindness. Of course, we did three days of that practice and um, learned a lot about it as we did it and all the little varieties and refinements that we learn when we do the practice and hear the back and forth in the hall. And also equanimity. Even though we weren't always practicing equanimity or maybe we didn't think we were, just by being on the path, just by being mindful, there's loads of equanimity already in your hearts. There's, if you are truthful with yourselves and look back at how reactive you were, oh, I just remember so much more drama in, in all the groups I've been in, in teaching. And there's so much less drama now. Um, it's just the ability of you all to just know what's going on. And, and if something bubbles up, okay, say it, be truthful about it. But to notice what goes on in your own heart and not just add that extra 
reactivity oomph. You're really much more aware of that now. So equanimity is the opposite of reactivity. And we see that reactivity in both ways, either attachment or aversion, there's a weakening of that. There's really a palpable weakening of that in that I sense in all of you that I've known for a long time. And, um, and I, I bet you sense it in your own hearts, too. And of course, all of that, um, the, the Buddha talked about these ten paramis because it was prompted by his compassion. Uh, for, for all of us in generations and in lifetimes to come. And we do the practice of these paramis because of compassion for ourselves. Compassion isn't one of these because compassion is the cause and condition for these to arise, for our practice, for us to do these practices. The one I didn't uh, mention yet is resolution or resolve. So this is the one I I want to fill out a little bit tonight. It isn't um, spoken of as much as the others. It isn't given, you know, its own Dharma talk, usually. So I just wanted to uh, bring that out this evening because I know when we go home from a retreat, we have some, we want to have more resolve to do our practice, and we do have resolve to do our practice in a more sustained way, in a way that we feel that we can give our hearts to it um, and not just lip service to it, that we can really actually do it. And maybe whatever we're doing, we can do it with a little more commitment if it means more time or more moment-to-moment energy, what, whatever that deeper commitment is that we Um, decide that we want to open to. We want to see what would it be like if I did, and then you you fill in the blank. So this evening it's exploring this power of resolve. What is the energy of resolve? You know, just sort of um, talking about it in a way, and then as I talk about it, look about it, look in your own hearts how you feel about same similar situations, how it is for you, how it needs to be um, a wholesome resolve to, uh, you know, encourage ourselves to be more mindful, be more loving, compassionate, maybe whichever one of those paramis that you pick up to see that I could practice this a little bit, I could maybe see how this one of these could be more activated in my life which will take the power of resolve. What does it feel like in the heart? How have you seen it in in your heart? Not as a a kind of something that you say as a resolution, like a New Year's resolution, but when you really drop down into your heart, how does it feel? How does it get carried out in one's life? You know, maybe by thinking about or reflecting on other people's lives. And sometimes we can't do it so much when we think about our own life, but when we think about other people's lives, we can see, oh, that's what it's all about. That's how we see it carried out. And then being conscious of what is unwise resolve or imbalanced resolve. 
what prevents it or contaminates it from happening, from, from really being there, what perfects it. We want to explore it because it's really the bedrock of the development of all the other paramis that I just spoke about. So the more each of these paramis are developed, the more the other ones are developed. And we especially have to look at the bedrock of all of these, which is resolve. The more happy we are in ourselves, the more accepting we can be of whatever is coming up for us in our lives, either seeing those things in our own hearts or seeing them uh, as they are displayed around us, the, the challenges that we see every day in our lives. Um, one of our colleagues, Richard Dreyfus, I think, He's, one, um, on, he's on the board of that Science and Mind with the, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, or he was on the board when we, we had met him. He said something that was so interesting, and it isn't really new, but just the way he put it was so, it just hit me. He said, happiness is not gratification on the hedonic dread, treadmill, but it's a sense of inner well-being. It's not about really getting things out there and having everything just perfect, you know. Um, in fact, trying to make everything perfect and controlling things is like, it's a, that's a lot of dukkha. But having this sense of well-being, no matter what's going on, it can be real dukkha outside of us or seeing that in our heart, but somewhere there's a part of ourselves that really rests in the possibility of going back to a sense of well-being, even if we don't feel it at that moment, because we know it's possible. We felt it, and we know that is one of the areas of our hearts and our minds. It's just not landed there in that moment. So this resolve, so, so important to take a look at, and how are we carrying that out in our lives in a balanced way? The Buddha said there are four resolves. The resolve for wisdom, the resolve for truth, the resolve for generosity, and the resolve for peace. One should not neglect wisdom. One should per preserve truth. One should cultivate generosity, and one should train in peace. So there, there are so many different ways that the Buddha said, you know, the three of this is good, the five of that, the four of this, etc. Well, just to remind us in different ways, you know, that here's something we can pay attention to, the resolve for wisdom, for truth, for generosity, for peace in our lives. And you've all been practicing resolve so naturally when you've been here. Uh, you've had this resolve for wisdom. That's why you're here, whether you can say it that way or not. Uh, you, you want to know what is wise in your life. How should we, where should we come from in our hearts to carry out that in our lives so that we can become wiser or we can connect with the wisdom within us? 
we all want to experience the truth. And when we face the truth of how it is inside our hearts and minds, really open to just how it is without running away from it when it's difficult or uh, closing down when it's difficult and trying to find something more pleasant when it's not so pleasant. There's something about our elder teachers say that um, we try to carry out. They say, don't dumb down the Dharma. Say it like it is. Don't try to change anything because it's easier for you to take. Take it like it is because there's really some truth to the way the elders were saying it. It's not something, you know, to make it nicer. We really have to face it like it is in order to experience it like it is. So there is this resolve when you take the precepts, when we take the precepts in the morning to not harm. The resolve to maintain noble silence. This may be a, a relief to a lot of us, but um, for some of the, the newer ones, um, I don't think the young Ian who had to, to leave with his family, um, I don't think he'd mind me saying that he said, you know, it was really different to just be inside my head, <laughs> you know? <laughs> his dad was here and he wished he could talk to his dad, but he didn't, and he just faced everything in his own head, you know, and 20 years old, and he was just so willing to do that. So those who took the eight precepts, more renunciation, you know, took more resolve to do that. I bet those of you who took the eight precepts wanted to eat, you know, that cookie for dinner once in a while, or whatever there was or just, you know, when I've taken the eight precepts, it's been such a relief not to have to think about dinner time, just to carry on with my practice. Uh, I was last teaching at the Forest Refuge, and, and actually one of my teachers was there practicing, Vivekananda. And um, so, at one of the little times we had a talk, he said, I, I was offering him some juice, and he says, um, uh, thank you, but I'll have this juice at lunch. I said, are you not having juice in the afternoon? Because you can have juice, you know, in the afternoon. And he said, no, he said, just to stop and have juice is a distraction for my practice. And he said, I, I, I would rather just keep practicing. So he doesn't stop. He just keeps a continuity without going to get anything. And that might be a high bar for some of us, but it really is worth exploring the eight precepts and find out what it takes to do without. And um, so to practice continuity, that took resolve. You know, every time you just said, oh, you know, I, I just want to give up or whatever, whatever happened to, to make you stop during that time and just allow yourself a little distraction and maybe maybe actually that could have been good for you. But to keep up the continuity, that takes that moment-to-moment -moment resolve. To remember to be mindful in all activities, that takes resolve. To sit with relative stillness. And sometimes we have to move a little bit, 
but to sit with relative stillness. And at the end of the sitting, some of you have said to me, uh, I thought I could sit a little bit more, so I tried it. And it, it was fine. You know, and it, it wasn't as painful as I thought. To stay with the moment-to-moment -moment experience in the walking, in the metta, in the compassion practice. You know, just to stay with it without giving up on yourselves. It takes resolve for all of that. It takes resolve to, to give of oneself, to let go of one's self-centered ideas. This is what generosity's one of the core um, promises of generosity is that we start letting go of things needing to resolve around me and mine and who I am. Not just the letting go at the time of death or at the time when we can let go of all, you know, all conditioned things, uh, even when we're alive, but just to let go of self-centered ideas. What a relief. What a relief. To experience peace at ever-deepening levels. So it takes this kind of resolve, even though you didn't know it, you had it. It was right there with you all the time. So <clears throat> some of the descriptions in the dictionaries and writings that I, I just looked up that word, resolve or resolution, we can feel these things in our hearts. They don't just have to be words. Steadfastness, de uh, stability, and I, I, I sense it as really a deep feeling of stability, like a like a rock in the wind, you know, it just doesn't waver. I mean, we may feel like we go up and down, but we stay the course. We stay the course on the path. A decisiveness. We may go off for a while, get a little shaken up, but our decision to come back and say, this is the direction, is very clear to us. So it takes that kind of clarity of decisiveness. It takes a devotion, and it's, it's a way that we learn to look at our path, not as a kind of grim uh, something, some rules and regulations that are placed upon us that we have to follow in order to look good, but uh, it's more like a devotion to, to ourselves, to our highest aspirations. What are they? And, and they don't ev even have to be so high for for us to feel like we've got some freedom by being devoted to those aspirations. Unwavering clarity of purpose. But it does take some knowing what our aspiration is, not just kind of following something because everybody else is following it and we're, you know, following each other like sheep. It, it really helps in the context of supporting one another, but uh, to, to really knowing ourselves, what is, what is our unique aspiration for ourselves on this path? So it's something maybe you can take home with. Um, we, did, we didn't want to present that in the beginning because you just think about it all the time. But now, as you go home, to clarify what your aspiration is. Your aspiration at the end of this retreat may be different than it was at the end of last retreat or before you came to this retreat. It changes all the time. 
you know, it gets clearer and clearer what it is for you. And to keep a conscious, gentle connection with that. So when you take some time when you're at home to, to explore what it is your, your clear and gentle aspiration is for yourself for this lifetime, if it's kind of, you know, far ahead as kind of like a mountaintop that you might have a direction to go towards. Or maybe it's for um, the next period of your life, to simplify your life, to, uh, to connect more with loved ones, to see whether we can develop a less reactive mind, whatever it is, uh, one of the paramis, for example to have a continuous and conscious, gentle connection with that. So that we have a sense of being devoted to that aspiration for ourselves. Not a bodhisattva's aspiration, unless that's what it is for you, of developing all these perfections of all the paramis and becoming a Buddha in a future uh, world cycle. But it, it may be just very simple, but in a way very profound as a human being. So don't forget that conscious, gentle connection with it. Maybe putting it up somewhere where it really means something to you. So that we're not just blowing in the wind, or our life isn't just about survival. Can it be more than that? That that came to me when I was um, raising my, my children, and I realized that my life, day to day, all I think about is just surviving, is just getting that food on the table, paying the rent, you know, making ends meet, staying connected with them, helping them get through life. And I realized there was no room in there for what's, what's a long-term direction of my own life. And, um, and that's actually when I, I thought about that, that's when I met the Dharma. And that's when the Dharma gave me some sense of a long-term direction of my life. And, and I was young, I was in my 20s, but it doesn't matter what age does not make any difference in this path of practice. So having a clear direction in one's life. And it's not just about having a goal that we're hanging on to, you know, needing, really needing to get there, but letting it be an open-ended goal. So it's not, we may not make it this lifetime to that, you know, high bar, but in time, if, if you believe in, in future life. And even if you don't believe, like Menindra says, maybe you don't believe it, but it's true. (laughs) I was really, I I still continue to be touched by a friend of mine who's also a yogi. And um, quite some time ago, she celebrated her 20th year anniversary of being in AA. And... um, she was at a one-month retreat 
with us. And, and we had talked about resolution then because we were talking about the Paramis. And I, I commented to her that, boy, it must have taken a strong resolution for you to be on the wagon this long, you know. And she, she says not, she tempted many, many times. But all those times, she just graciously said, no thanks, or averted the, the um, invitation somehow. She said, no, it was not a strong determination at all. It was a day-to-day conscious intention to stay with that resolve. It was day-to-day, opportunity by opportunity, Every time she faced a choice to stay on the path or to go astray from it, she stayed on the path. And she could look back, and she has an incredible sense of well-being. She's gone through so much in her life. Um, I can't even begin to tell you, but she has an incredible sense of well-being because she's faced it all. She didn't do it with a strident oomph. She did it with gentle, persevering resolve. So why is resolve so important? Because obviously it gives us a sense of strength and stability that's really genuine. It's not like, you know, we're putting ourselves in a some kind of bind that we have to do it or else you know, we'll be seen in a bad way or we'll see ourselves in a bad way. But we're constantly aligning ourselves with whatever aspiration we have, whether it's short-term or for a period of our life or for, um, you know, the end goal, the end uh, aspiration of this life. I think as we get older, one of the obvious aspirations we, that becomes more um, practical and comes in more clarity to ourselves is that we'd like to be able to die with a loving heart. Yeah. That's, that's a pretty high aspiration without any bitterness, without any regrets even without possibly any remorse, which is a good thing, you know, to think about how we did it in the past and try to better ourselves. But at the time of death, you know, maybe the next life, but to be able to die without any remorse even in the mind, that's a very high bar. So if we can see that aspiration that we have day by day, moment to moment, and when we forget, we can remember it, no problem. It's the light that helps us to see the path right in front of us, just right beneath our feet, or feel that gentle wind at our back that, you know, it's just gently helping us to go forward on the path, energetically guiding us to the highest values of of our life. So in terms of doing our practice here, in the Dharma, in retreat here, just want to talk about some ways that I had to have, be realistic about my aspiration. 
I remember when I, I first went to uh, a retreat and you know I just had really high goals for myself and I was so inspired by the people that I met and uh, I do my walking practice and I would start out on my track you know of 20 steps or 25 steps and I would I would make a resolution at the beginning of the track and I'd say perfect mindfulness from here to there all the way to the end you know really that was so unrealistic because it couldn't happen I mean <laughs> and so I would start out and I realized it's not possible right now it's just not possible so I just face the reality of that and then I began to see that just a little ahead there were little marks in the on the uh, track that there would be a little there would be a leaf that I would just keep my eyes on to keep you know the the sense doors guarded I would just keep the eyes ahead and see that little leaf and I would say okay going for that leaf and I would just do the best I could to be mindful from here to that leaf and then from here to that little line in the in the pavement and then from there to that little rock and it was just little by little step by step there's a a man that uh, we know in, in our home uh, island of Maui he's he has lots of restaurants there and he would always say to me about you know as he built up his restaurants he would say Kamala inch by inch it's a cinch by the yard it's hard and I just would always remember that you know it would just take one step at a time and that would help me um, through my practice particularly when there were times when there was a lot of fear in facing the in facing dukkha or the the kind of like uh, the depth the incredible depth of dukkha in our own hearts of, of seeing how deeply ingrained the defilements are in the mind and we we think that oh no this is nothing you know we can get over this anger but the way they keep it keeps coming up and just seeing how persistent it all is and in I'm I'm a pretty I'm a pretty good human being. I mean, I didn't come with a huge amount of defilements into this life. But what I saw in deep practice, you open up to seeing something really, really huge. You really have to face the reality of it. I mean, unless you're almost a saint. And um, even Deepama, I'll tell you about her story a little later, it was really hard to open to seeing all of that. And then opening to see just what there there was no self that really experienced that that was really scary that was so fearful you know that I couldn't take it and during one of those times I remember I I went to the teacher and um, Upandita Seda Upandita and I I fell in a puddle on the floor I just kind of collapsed is a great word because I I really collapsed I, I walked in and before I could do my bows it just I couldn't go on and I said I just can't go on it's too hard it's just too hard to face all of this let me just take what I can in and then I'll, I'll come back again another time 
And the, the monk who was assisting him from Nepal, Venerable Unyanaponika, he was translating, and he didn't know how to translate what I was saying, you know. I remember he got up from his seat, and he just started, he said, oh, there's so much dukkha in this world, there's so much dukkha in this world, you know. And then um, he got the translation from Sayadaw Upandita, and I don't know, I, I think they weren't used to seeing, you know, like a Westerner just fall on the ground and start sobbing away. <laughs> I mean, usually people kept it together. <laughs> and so um, that was in the beginning days. I think he had only been to America one time before that, before I went to see him where he was. And so um, the translator said to me, and I don't know whether this came from Sayadaw Pandita, he said, when you don't know what to do, because I told him it was in my walking practice, and he said, when you don't know what to do, what you can do is stop, mindfully bend down, and pull up your socks. <laughs> So, you know, I was just listening. <laughs> and I, when I went to practice, they said, when you go to learn from these high masters, you are like a child and you take in their advice like, like you were a child. So that's what I did. And I, so I said, okay. <laughs> I thought that was some secret ingredient, you know? It's a good thing I wore socks. So that's what I did when I'd be walking, because I'd feel a lot of emotional energy when I was walking that I didn't feel when I was sitting. So I'd, I'd, I'd feel like giving up, so I'd, I'd notice that wanting to give up, wanting to collapse, or however I said it during that time, and really felt it. So I would, okay, mindfully just take the attention someplace else, bend over, pull up the socks, get up again, and somehow I just felt like it was a magic spell. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I could keep going, and I, and I did. You know, it really helped me to, I mean, now if we say something like that to you, it won't work. So, uh, but what, what was it? It was just like going for a moment to some, something else that you could be mindful of. That's all it was. Sometimes you just need to take a break, you know, look at the trees, notice seeing, 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 and then come back and do your practice. Take something as simple as that. To resolve to stay with it. Somebody said that that really helped. Just to stay with it when you felt like giving up. To remind yourself, stay with it, just stay with it. And it's helped by a lot of the other paramis, by patience. Being willing to let go of that feeling of collapse, equanimity, compassion, many of the other paramis come into play also. And it's the wisdom too. Wisdom is one of the paramis to something deep within us, not all the time, maybe rare times it isn't with us because you, you wouldn't keep coming back if this wisdom wasn't with you. The wisdom that knows that this is worthy of doing. Whatever I'm doing, it's worthy of doing. And that's what makes us come back to the path. It's the right view to say, 
something's happening here. Sometimes I can't know what it is, but it's worthy of doing. Steve's uh, saying, which I love, is comfort is not a goal worthy of your efforts. You know, just trying to be comfortable in your life, I mean, that, that's a lot of dukkha, too. Trying to control everything so you feel comfortable with it. So it takes a lot less energy to just open to what is, actually. But it takes a lot of training to do that, and that's what we're doing here. So actually to develop those paramis in and of themselves, because they're such a help to us, uh, resolve, patience, whatever it is that you choose when you go home, and um, recommend that you just take a look at them, that list. You can Google it, it'll come up anywhere. You know, and, uh, we, we handed those sheets out, various retreats that you've been at, so you might have them still at home. <coughs> That can be far-reaching aspiration. Um, Steve's aspiration is to develop patience. And, uh, <laughs> it really is working, too. <laughs> I'm not going to be in the doghouse tonight. <laughs> So, picking one of those, taking them home with you, you know, if you're a journal writer, every day write about how many times you saw that particular opportunity and you were devoted to it. So, generosity, patience, renunciation, letting go of something, truthfulness, loving kindness, equanimity, wisdom, living in harmony. They can become the default setting of the mind. Each one of those can, but it really takes resolve to carry any of that form, day to day, in a sitting, in a walking, in relationship to individuals, our work, whatever. We have that sense of inviolable well-being that's so wonderful to have. Somebody's shouting at you, like I mentioned in the, uh, my Dharma talk the other day, when you can feel deep inside that you can stay steady even with this. It's what happens in life. And you can face it, whatever it is. They become the default setting of the mind. And we can become familiar with those difficult places. Half of the Hardship is, is just opening to it and becoming familiar with it and then finding out it's not as bad as we thought to face those places of fear and, and dread inside of ourselves. There's a sense of purpose when we're, we're developing something that is so long-lasting. That, that's what goes with us into our next lifetime. Deep, this deep sense of well-being, along with all of the other difficult parts of the mind and heart, challenging parts. So we have the chance in this lifetime, in this human life, that's why they call this human life so precious, 
so precious and not to waste our life but to to use our life to develop something uh, that will carry us through the other to the other shore so I'd like to read um, this by Goethe until one is committed there is hesitancy the chance to draw back always ineffectualness Concerning all acts of initiative, there is one elementary truth, the ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans. That the moment one definitely commits oneself, providence moves too. All sorts of things occur to help one that would never otherwise have occurred. A whole stream of events issue from the decision, raising in one's favor all manner of unforeseen incidents and meetings and material assistance which no one could have dreamed would come his way. Whatever you can do or dream you can, begin it. Boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. Begin it now. So whatever you're resolving, you know, with gentle, persevering, balanced effort, remember it. And not to be afraid. It, it, everything comes forth when we really do it in that way. And I, I know that to be true from, from my own life. A lot of magic happens in a, in, a, in a realistic way. I know magic seems like an unrealistic word, but in a realistic way around the Dharma. I mean, how many of you who said that you know, I just wanted to hear this about da-da-da, and then one of you said it. You know, you, you explained something, or maybe I, you didn't even know that it needed to be done, but you got something that you needed. I mean anything. Um, anything that's said in the Dharma is something we need. One time in a retreat, Steve and I, what we did was we, we read some things worthy of reading in the yellow pages of a phone book. And people actually translated them to something that was important for them. So if, you know, you really want to hear the truth or you really want to kind of have something open your heart, and that's where your aspiration is, er everywhere you look, that's going to happen for you. Whether you're seeing dukkha or you're seeing beauty, So I, I first learned about resolve from uh, who was closest to me, my mother, in, in her life. And uh, to make a long story short, she had to raise uh, three, two children, and then she had a third one after remarrying, after um, she became a single parent too. And she. Uh, came from the Philippines over to America as an immigrant with me on a boat a long time ago. And she spoke very, very little English and her, her schooling was only up to the fourth grade. And the fourth grade in the Philippines is probably like the first grade here. But she had a lot of, of um, just basic intelligence and a practical way of seeing life and a lot of resolution. And when I look back in life, I saw that 
her main resolve, her main resolution in life was just raising her children in the best way she could, making a family uh, uh, a home for us. And she had real um, dedication to it, a real devotion to it. I saw that in, in that resolve to do the best she could, um, even when I was a little girl, I saw just how much equanimity she had to have during her life. And a lot of this, you know, we get just from being around people like that. That's why it's important to be around people in the Dharma who are practicing those, uh, those, in those ways. She had a lot of patience, of course, and um, she had the energy to keep going. She had a lot of generosity, and I saw how important it was in her life, and then how we lived well, even though we were poor. It, she, it didn't matter who came to the door. She gave something. She, I remember the Encyclopedia Britannica uh, salesperson, you know, he was always coming around our neighborhood, and he would always come to, to our house because my mother always offered him a cup of coffee. We used to buy um, a large bag of rice all the time, and, uh, or it was given to us by the church. And before he left, she would give him something, even a cup of rice in a little plastic bag to take home. And I saw from that, from that giving, that we, we were okay in our lives. We always had enough food to eat, we always had shelter, and we always had good friends, and things were okay, relatively okay in our lives. She trusted in the faith and goodness of life. And it's really important for us to see that. One of the things that activate, uh, things that activate resolve is faith. And wherever we can have faith, sometimes in the moment it can't be in ourselves, but we can have faith that it's possible because we see it in another person. Or we've experienced seeing that they had faith and it came about this way. It's why it's so important to have teachers who have a lot of faith. Um, I can say that Steve and I have unshakable faith in the Dharma. It's just, um, it's beyond questioning. Trusting in the natural goodness of, of being human um, when we see it in another person and we know it's possible that that can be, I can live that way too. So when we don't have faith in ourselves, seeing it in someone else, but when we do have faith in ourselves, going there first or whenever we can, just remembering, I did this before, I can do it again. So a lot of times in my own practice, the afternoon would be terrible or the evening would be terrible but I could remember I got through the morning or I got through the last sitting and I can get through this one. Or in terms of, you know, the tragedies that happen in life uh, when they come again, because they will keep coming, and in, but our relationship to them changes. So then we, we remember we got through that one. We can get through this one. So wherever you can 
have faith in yourself. It's, it's just tr- beginning to trust yourself again. Where can you do that when you have resolve? It Just find some place where you, instead of landing on the places where you feel not good about yourself, make it a habit to land on the places where we do feel good about ourselves. The function of trusting and having faith is to clarify. That's the function because when, we're, when we don't have faith, we're confused and we don't know the path. We, we can't see the path ahead or what the next step is to take. So the function is to clarify and it's manifested as decisiveness. So we know at least to take that next step or to do the next thing, or to decide, I'm not going to decide now. I'm going to decide when I get there, and then I know the conditions of whatever that is, and then I'll decide. There were so many times, uh, as I just mentioned, when I couldn't do the practice, and I, I would think to myself, I can't go on. But just to be able to admit that to myself, then I realized, oh yeah, I can. you know. Just because I admitted that truth to myself and not made it all rosy, you know, that uh, sometimes just to admit that uh, I feel like I'm collapsing because that's facing the truth of that moment. Or I feel like I can't go on, but I, I can. One time I walked in, and this was when I was a nun in, in Burma, and um, I walked into the interview, and Seda Upandita, who, who we all have a sense that he knows us more than we know ourselves sometimes. I walked in the room, and I'm, he could probably tell that I, I wanted to go home. The, the thing that um, really plagues me in retreat a lot is homesickness. I'm, I'm, I'm a nesting person, and I'm really attached to being home. So it plagues me a lot. I want to go home, and especially in times of trouble and in my practice or when I'm far away and things are unfamiliar. So I walked, was walking in, and he can see on my face, he can see in my wavering kind of walk probably, which it was not exactly mindful, that um, something was going on. So he started to chant in Pali, which was then translated in English by the nun who was translating this um, saying that, in order to experience a greater happiness, you have to sacrifice a lesser happiness. The greater happiness at the, uh, uh, the, the lesser happiness at the moment was going home, really. That would provide such temporary relief. But the greater happiness, in order to succeed at the greater happiness, which was really my aspiration, I had to really let go of that. And so sure enough, when I gave my report, it was about homesickness is arising and it's not passing away. You know, <laughs> so just being with that over and over again. So then, you know, in time subsequent to that, just remembering that this quote from Charles Dubois, 
The important thing is this, to be able at any moment to sacrifice what we are, just what's transpiring in, in those moments, for what we could become. Because so often we forget about how a deeper sense, what our aspiration is, that deeper sense of well-being. So what prevents or contaminates this feeling of clear resolve is the opposite of faith, doubt in oneself or doubt in the practice. Indecision, wavering, lack of commitment, not applying ourselves, becoming disheartened and frustrated. So what do we do with all of these? It's just knowing that they're there, facing with mindful attention that these are present, and then having the right view at that time. The right view is this is impermanent. We don't have to take it on as me or mine or who I am. And, you know, stop clinging to what we think sh we should, hap uh, should happen. So, remembering, um, Steve always gives this analogy that a rocket to the moon is off course 99% of the time. It knows the direction it's going and the final goal or aspiration, but there are many mid-course directions, uh, corrections. So all along the way, there's just we have to just accept that there are so many mid-course corrections in our practice, and every every single day, every single we're we're looking for the balance. Sometimes it's too energetic. Sometimes not enough energy. Sometimes too much doubt, or sometimes too much confidence. We're too strident in our practice. So knowing the twists and turns and being, being willing to, to open to them, to face it, that's the way it is. So as we go along in our path, um, being able to understand what the contaminants to this resolve are, what can, what can help us, what can support us, and being able to gently acknowledge that resolve day by day, connect with it. So I just wanted to say something about, some of you have talked about having the resolve to doing a longer retreat, longer than you've been doing so far. And I, I wanted to tell you this story of when I decided to um, take a longer retreat. It wasn't that month-long retreat that I took just after a weekend retreat, but it was um, where I had to stop and go a lot within that one-month retreat. But I decided at one point to go far away from my home where I, I knew that you know, I couldn't leave, or that I likely wouldn't leave, that I would stay on with the practice. And um, I made a decision to go to uh, a retreat with Upandita in, in Australia. And it was really hard to do. I actually, I had four children at that time, and they were all quite young. And, but my partner at that time, the, the father of um, my last child, was very, very supportive. And I'm, 
I'm so grateful to him. He's been a wonderful uh, father, and um, the times we were together, he was a wonderful partner to me. So grateful to him. Well, uh, he said he would take good care of all the children. He took my three children that were his stepchildren as his own, and uh, and they some of them were older, and so they took care of each other. In deciding to go to that retreat, I had to prepare one year or more in advance, and I saved uh, a lot of money to pay for the all the house payments in advance. Um, all the payments I had to make in advance. You know, I put things in the freezer. I cooked and put things in the freezer for them. I wrote out letters, cards to them before I left. And I had uh, their father mail those letters to them, those cards to them, so they would get them during the time I was gone. And also I did metta for them every time, every day I was gone. And actually, there was so much resolve in my heart, and I don't expect any one of you to have this kind of resolve. But we actually sold our house and bought a house that we didn't have such a high payment on. And um, that helped me to get to a retreat. And so, to get to that retreat. Um, so I went to that retreat, and I had so much resolve in that retreat. And that was retreat, the retreat where I fell apart on the floor. I wanted to go home. They said, pull up your socks. It kept me there. You know. <laughs> that was that retreat where I faced so much fear of seeing so much terrain I had never seen before. And um, it really, that re resolve helped me to keep going. And it was the, I was fairly new in the Dharma. And it had it had such such impact on my doing that practice then that it, it changed the direction of my life. I, I entered into another stream of my life with that retreat. And uh, it took a lot of resolve to keep going through the difficulties. So, and it's not as difficult now. It's still difficult, but it's not as difficult. I'm not sitting here with an absence of pain. There's pain in the body, there's pain in the heart, but there's much less reactivity to it than there was in the past. So, I'd like to end with this choosing between two poems. I usually end with the journey, but I'll read that tomorrow. This is very high bar. <laughs> this is from Mahabua, a great Thai master. Do you know Mahabua? Yeah. He says, from the very start of my practice, I was real in, in earnest, really in earnest, because that's the sort of person I was. I wouldn't just play around. Whenever I would take my stance, that's how it would have to be. When I set out to practice, I only had one book, the Patimoka, in my shoulder bag. 
Now I was going for the full path and the full results. I was going to give it my all, give it my life. I wasn't going to hope for anything else. I was going to hope for nothing but complete release from suffering. I was sure that I would attain release from suffering in this lifetime. All I asked was that there be someone who could show me the path, the paths, plural, fruitions, and Nibbana, that they were for real. I would give my life to that person and to the Dhamma through the practice without keeping anything back. If I were to die, I'd die with the practice. My heart was set like a stone post. That was Mahabua. So whatever your aspiration, your journey is, may it be with a full heart. So let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.